Disclaimer. In this episode, we will be discussing rape, murder, and assault of multiple women, girls, whoever came into their path. This will be the only warning, so please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. What's up, guys? Honestly, we should probably just get right into it because this is a longer one. Yeah. If not, two parts. Not Are sure yet. Are you going to do a two-parter? It might be. This, I think, might be your first two-parter. No. Is it? I think so. I'm the worst for writing long stories. This one always... just kept going, and I was like, yeah. there's just so much information. I thought I thought you were doing the Green River Killer this time, and I'm like, I can't wait to see if she can squeeze that into one episode, so I it's don't almost, think you've done a two-parter. It's yet. almost too easy to get that one into one part what no way what like because like you there's not that many details into the victim so like right but now there's still like 80 of them i know so like do we just literally do i sit there and i go in part two we are going to list all the victims because that's what i have right now i go through the story mm-hmm. and then the only thing left to do is part two which is us be sitting there like in 1986 he was killed I'm just saying, like, when I did John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy, which I'm going to do again with you for bonus episodes, but I literally go through and list, like, the timeline and the victims' names and, like, the bare minimum information. Those both turned into two-part episodes. And, I mean, 30, 30, 33 victims. And for Green River, you're talking dozens and dozens of women. Yeah, it'll be... Like, I have it done, and it's it's written in two parts, and when I when we record it, I will get your feedback to see if, like, we should do the two parts, or if we're just going to say, if you guys want to see a list of the victims, mm-hmm. seek it out. Part of that also has to be that um, we all know the names of these murderers the green river killer or gary ridgeway btk dennis raider but can we sit down and name the victims like i can for the most part but that's because my brain is just always on true crime and has been for so long but most people we remember the criminal and not the victims so even to say their names on a platform like this is just kind of giving them um I guess some remembrance, not putting their killers on the pedestal and putting them above them, kind of, you know what I'm saying? Totally, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. But anyways, that's off topic, sort of. Can't wait to hear. Have you said what we're covering yet? No. (laughs) Painting. Hangnail. Um... Today's chapter is all about Fred and Rose West. You. This is a big one. So, again, might be multiple parts. There's just a lot of information, and I believe it's all important to go through, at least that that I included. We're going to dive into their crimes, but also talk about the debate on the evidence available against Rose West, because still to this day, she holds on that she is innocent. And she's alive. She's still alive. Uh, yes, I do believe she's yeah. still alive. I think he just died not too very long ago, but yeah. 
at the end once you have all the information I want to hear from our listeners. One thing I think we will be able to say at the end of this chapter is that Fred was evil and Rose was demented in the most sadistic ways. Mm -hmm. So that's my opinion. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I share that opinion. Nice. Diving in headfirst here, we will talk about Fred West. I'd say there's no debate on what kind of a person or monster he is. Frederick Walter Stephen West was born on September 29, 1941 at Bickerton Cottage, Much Markle, mm-hmm. I believe is how you say it, in Herefordshire. Lord, please. <laughs> I mean, I'd help, but I don't have anything uh, to read here. So Herefordshire. Herefordshire. I bet you it's Herefordshire. Like, real quick. Have you... Herefordshire. <laughs> when you were researching this, did you go on YouTube at all? Yeah, and I would do, the like... The new one where his brother was talking? Yeah, John. Have you seen that? I only saw part one because it was that new, and then part two was coming out in a week, and I never went to look for it, but it was very interesting. No, but I definitely do have details on just, like, what the brother would say and his opinion like in some spots, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, <clears throat> so, Fred was the first surviving child of Walter West and Daisy Hill. Surviving because, you know, back in like, back in the day, not everybody was surviving when they were given birth in their homes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Fred was from a poor family of farm workers, and his father was known to be a disciplinarian and his mother overprotective. In 1946, the family moved to Moore Court Cottage, a semi-detached building adjacent to Moore Court Farm on the outskirts of Much Markle, where Fred's father worked as a milking herdsman and a harvest hand. Mm. So they were all kind of like a... They were, they were working working class, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The cottage had no electricity and was heated by log fire. By 1951, Fred's mother had given birth to eight children, six of whom survived. Fred apparently was always his mother's favorite. So, I mean, I'm guessing that they're just assuming that, but whatever. He was seen as a mama's boy and relied mostly on his siblings for companionship. The West children were expected to perform assigned chores and all six did seasonal work. The three girls picking hops and strawberries and the three boys harvesting wheat and hunting rabbits. The necessity of working to earn a living and to survive instilled a strong work ethic in Fred, but also a weird lifelong habit of petty theft. Hmm. So like the mindset of do what you have to do. Yeah. Take whatever you have to take. Perhaps to survive, he needed to steal from time to time. Like to me, it's, it's almost like an oxymoron to be like, they had a strong work ethic, but then be like, And he would steal. Yeah. If you have a strong work ethic, you'd think that you wouldn't be stealing. But I guess I would say he has a strong, they they raise them to have a strong survival ethic, I guess. Sure. With a not so good moral compass. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Moving on. Classmates described Fred as scruffy, dim, lethargic, and regularly in trouble. 
Throughout his life, he remained barely literate, yet displayed an aptitude for woodwork and artwork. He left school in December 1956 at the age of 15 and worked as a laborer at Moorcourt Farm. Fred later claimed that he had been sexually abused by his mother at age 12 and that he had engaged in acts of bestiality with animals in his early teens, and also that his belief that incest was normal stemmed from his father's incest with Fred's sister. But perhaps you are talking about Doug, who is another one of Fred's... Doug. It was Doug. It was Doug. The youngest brother. He dismissed those claims as fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, though I would say that I don't believe Fred and Doug were very close. But there was a very large age gap? Yes. Yeah. And Fred was closer to his brother, John. Mm. It's all along the same lines, but... And it wasn't until relatively recently that Doug came out and gave his version of events. But even back then, like, he would have only been four or five, six years old. I know. the, The way the children remember things is rarely accurate. Yeah, and I'd, I would say that, like, there's no way he was around all the time yeah. during things and whatnot. Absolutely. Um, though it's so I, interesting to see this guy talk because he is the spitting image of Fred West. It's oh, disgusting gross. to look at, yeah. By 1957, Fred and his brother John frequently socialized at a youth club in nearby Ledbury. His distinct and guttural accent, so like Southern, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, Mm -hmm. uh, marked him as a country bumpkin, and he thought that he kind of had the right to aggressively pester women and girls, whom he objectified as sources of pleasure to be used as he saw fit. He would abruptly approach and fondle them. Gross. When a girl accepted his advances, she would find his sexual performance unsatisfying, as his primary objective was his own gratification. Of course. Of course. At age 17, Fred suffered a fractured skull, a broken arm, and a broken leg in a motorcycle accident. And in that accident, he actually, it caused him to be unconscious for seven days and made him walk with braces for several months after the accident Mm -hmm. it's crazy and he developed an extreme fear of hospitals and became prone to fits of rage which we often see in head injuries Mm -hmm. two years later fred suffered a further head injury when a girl he groped on a fire escape outside the youth club punched him sending him falling two floors Mm -hmm. at a girl (laughs) in june 1961 Fred's 13-year-old sister, Kitty, told her mother that Fred had been raping her since the previous December and had impregnated her. Fred was arrested and freely admitted to police he had been molesting young girls since his early teens and asked, doesn't everybody do it? Though disgusted by her son's actions, Fred's mother had been prepared to testify in his defense. Immediately prior to her scheduled testimony, Kitty changed her mind and refused to testify, and the case collapsed. Much of Fred's family effectively disowned him, his mother banished him from the household, and he moved into the much Markle house of his aunt, Violet. By mid-1962, he had reconciled with his parents, but his relationship with most of his family remained shaky. 
Interestingly enough, some information says the 13-year-old was a family friend, but what I could find, it was his younger sister. So, do you know if she had that baby or cuz back then I don't know, like I don't know, but I think that they would have easy to get an abortion. I agree. She probably would have been forced to have it. Which wasn't very crazy. Like, that's not, like, really a focal point of this story because there is a lot of incest that goes on and there's a lot of uh, that kind of stuff. It's fucked. Either way, he escaped a jail sentence as it was claimed that he was suffering from fits as a result of the head trauma and also, obviously, with Kitty and his mom stepping back almost, like, to protect him. Yeah. The case just crumbled. He was, however, convicted of child molestation. So, some kind of background, I guess. Fast forward to when Fred turned 21. He met his first wife, Catherine, a.k.a. Rena Costello, at a much Markle dance hall in 1960. He dated her for several months before she returned to Scotland. Rena was allegedly pregnant by an Asian bus driver at the time of her marriage to Fred and may have relocated from Glasgow to England due to members of her family expressing their displeasure at her being pregnant with a mixed race child. That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. She married Fred in Ledbury on November 17th, the sole guest being Fred's younger brother, John. The couple initially lived in Fred's aunt's home then moved to Copebridge, where Fred worked as an ice cream van driver. Yikes. Rena's daughter, Charmaine, was born in March of 1963, and to explain the child's mixed ancestry, Rena and Fred claimed that she had suffered a miscarriage and that Charmaine was adopted. What a pretty name. What a gorgeous name. Shortly thereafter, the couple relocated to Savoy Street, in the Bridgeton district of Glasgow. In July 1964, Rena and Fred had a daughter and named her Anna Marie. Fred was an abusive asshole to both Rena and the children. He kept the girls in the bottom of a bunk bed with bars fitted to the space between the bunks, effectively caging them, and they were allowed out only when he was at work. So, and I also heard that he, because Charmaine wasn't his biological, daughter he was extremely ruthless with her like he was cruel to her yeah but honestly biological or not he really didn't have boundaries and I mean I only say it that way because I like I said I had heard and read cruel to Charmaine but showed affection to his biological daughter if I'm wrong, we'll get to it. But. Yeah, affection. Like, he raped everybody, but oh. Oh. <laughs> not good affection. Um, so, Rena and Fred soon became acquainted with a friend of a friend, 16-year-old Anne McFall, who at the time was going through grief due to the death of her boyfriend in a workplace accident. Fred later admitted to having engaged in numerous affairs in the early years of his marriage and fathered one illegitimate child with a woman from the Gorbals. When Rena discovered her husband's infidelity, she began an affair with a man named John McLaughlin. 
Now, this information comes from John McLaughlin himself, so grain of salt. On one occasion, Fred discovered the pair in an embrace. He punched Rena, making her scream. In response, McLaughlin punched Fred, who drew a knife in Grace McLaughlin's abdomen. When punched by McLaughlin a second time, Fred stopped defending himself. Quote, he couldn't tackle a man but wasn't so slow in attacking women. He and Rena continued their affair and McLaughlin witnessed Rena's bruises and black eyes worsen. On each occasion, it became apparent Fred had beaten his wife. McLaughlin would then extensively beat Fred. <laughs> in another instance, McLaughlin witnessed Charmaine, who was a little older than a toddler at the time, ask Fred for an ice cream from his van. In response, Fred struck her across the head, like in front of McLaughlin, and that triggered another beating from McLaughlin. Again, grain of salt with all that information, not because I doubt that Fred can be that evil, but more so that McLaughlin could obviously be overstating or exaggerating to make himself look better or anything in between, really. Like, how many men do we know who are like, yeah, he did that once in front of me and I socked him right in his eye. I said, you don't beat women around me. Like, you know what I mean? And then for it to happen over and over and over again, yeah. you're not, you're not, you're not effective at what you're trying to do, sir. And like men like that are typically like cowards. So you wouldn't think that he would keep doing it if he was getting beatings every time but either way on november 4th 1965 fred accidentally ran over and killed a small boy in glasgow with his van now i like i hate using the word accidentally because it's like it, it can't be a coincidence in my opinion but he was cleared of any wrongdoing by police but feared the hostile reaction and potential reprisals for the accident from the locals whom he relied upon to make his living. In December, he had to return to Gloucester with Charmaine and Anna Marie, renting a caravan at the Timberland Caravan Park in Bishop's Cleve. Rena joined him in February 1966, accompanied by Anne and the friend who originally introduced Anne to the Wests, whose name was Vi McNeil. They all moved into Fred's caravan. All of them. Mm -hmm. Shortly after the move south, Fred found employment driving a large truck for a local slaughterhouse. By early 1966, Fred had begun to exhibit dominance and control over all three women. He was also prone to violent mood swings, and Rena and McNeil typically bore the brunt of his fury. Fred also physically attacked his stepdaughter more than once. He is also reported to have begun sexually abusing Charmaine and to have encouraged Rena to turn to prostitution to bring in extra income. To escape Fred's domestic abuse and increasingly sadistic sexual demands, Rena phoned McLaughlin, begging him to rescue her, McNeil, and her children. Together, McLaughlin, Rena, and McNeil devised a plan. He and McNeil's boyfriend, John Trotter, would secretly drive to Bishop's Cleave in McLaughlin's vehicle and discreetly take Rena and her children and McNeil back to Scotland. McFall had by this stage become infatuated with Fred. So McFall is uh, Anne. Anna. Yeah, yeah. 
Fred had promised to marry her, so she was all about him. It is likely she informed Fred of the plan as he arrived at the meeting time and McFall was oddly calm as she informed McNeil that she wasn't going to go. As she informed McNeil, she intended to remain with Fred to work as the children's nanny. So given off like I'm taking over here vibes. An altercation ensued between Fred and McLaughlin, resulting in Fred being struck several times as he clutched onto Charmaine and Anna Marie. Police were called and McLaughlin, Trotter, McNeil, and Rena left, with Fred threatening to kill Rena should he ever see her again. So, they left the kids with him. Mm-hmm. Interesting choice. To ensure her daughter's well-being, Rena frequently traveled to England to visit Charmaine and Anna Marie while they lived with Fred at Bishop's Cleave. Despite initially maintaining her friendship with McVall, Rena soon began to resent her presence around her daughters. On October 11th, in an act of resentment, Rena stole some belongings from Fred's caravan and returned to Glasgow. She was arrested the following month and returned to Gloucester to face trial (laughs) on november 29th rena was sentenced to three years probation fred testified at the hearing admitting he and mcfall were living together but falsely claiming mcfall intended to return to scotland because i think she would have been like an immigrant technically after the trial mcfall moved into a caravan at the timberland caravan park rena alternated between living with fred and returning to glasgow Letters McFall sent to her family and McNeil in Glasgow between 1966 and 1967 indicate she believed a relationship with Fred could offer her a better life than what she had experienced in Scotland, and she tried to persuade Fred to divorce his wife and marry her. Hmm. Right? In July 1967, McFall, aged 18 and eight months pregnant with Fred's child, vanished she was never reported missing but her dismembered remains were found buried at the edge of a cornfield between much markle and kempley in june 1994 her limbs had been carefully separated at the joints and many finger and toe bones were missing from her body likely to have been retained as keepsakes her unborn child may also have been cut from her womb Fred initially denied he had killed McFall, but confided in one visitor following his arrest that he had stabbed her to death following an argument. This explanation is inconsistent with the fact that her wrists were found with sections of dressing gown cord wrapped around them, suggesting she had been restrained prior to her murder. The following month, Rena returned to live with Fred and the couple relocated to the Lake House Caravan Park. Their relationship initially improved, but Rena left the following year, again leaving the children in his care. Trash. (laughs) On these occasions when Fred had no woman to supervise and care for the girls, he temporarily placed them in the care of social services. Now on to when Freddie met Rosie jokes but like freddie fred and rose freddie and rosie anyway 
Fred first encountered Rosemary Lutz in early 1969, shortly after her 15th birthday. 15. Mm-hmm. The pair first met while waiting for the same bus. Initially, Rose was repulsed by Fred's unkept appearance and deduced he was a tramp, but she became quickly flattered by the attention Fred continued to lavish on her over the following days as he continuously sat beside her at the same bus stop. So weird predator and like if you guys want to look up photos of this guy, ugly as fuck. (laughs) Rose twice refused to go on a date with Fred but allowed him to accompany her home. In her initial conversations, Fred quickly discovered that although Rose had never had a boyfriend, she was overtly promiscuous. He also extracted a degree of sympathy from her by claiming he and his two daughters had been abandoned by his wife and he wished for more children. Sicko. (laughs) Having discovered Rose worked in a nearby bread shop, A few days after their first encounter, Fred persuaded an unknown woman to enter the premises and present her with a gift, accompanied by the explanation that a man outside had asked her to present this gift to her. Minutes later, Fred entered the premises and asked Rose to accompany him on a date that evening, an offer she accepted. Because, wow, how romantic. Shortly thereafter, Rose began a relationship with Fred, becoming a frequent visitor at the Lake House Caravan Park and a willing nanny to Charmaine and Anna Marie, whom she noted were neglected and whom she initially treated with care and affection. On several occasions in the early days of their courtship, Rose insisted she and Fred take the girls on excursions to gather wildflowers. Within weeks of her first meeting Fred, Rose left her job at the bread shop in order to become the nanny to Charmaine and Anna Marie. This decision was made with the agreement that Fred would provide her with sufficient money to give to her parents on Fridays to convince them she was still obtaining a salary at the bread shop. Several months later, Rose introduced Fred to her family, who were shocked at their daughter's choice of partner. (laughs) Rose's mother, Daisy, was unimpressed with Fred and correctly concluded he was a pathological liar. Her father, Bill Letts, a diagnosed schizophrenic who was believed to have molested his daughter, vehemently disapproved of the relationship, threatening Fred directly and promising to call social services if he continued to date Rose. Just a reminder that Fred would be 28 or 29 at this time. Rose's parents forbade their daughter from continuing to date Fred, and she defied their wishes, prompting them to visit the social services to explain that their 15-year-old daughter was dating an older man and that they had heard rumors that she had begun to engage in prostitution at his caravan. In response, Rose was placed in a home for troubled teenagers in August of 1969. She was only allowed to leave under controlled conditions. When allowed to return home to visit her parents at weekends, Rose almost every single time took the opportunity to visit Fred instead of staying with her parents. Mm -hmm. On her 16th birthday, Rose left the home for troubled teenagers to return to her parents. 
Fred at the time was serving a 30-day sentence for theft and unpaid fines. Upon Fred's release, Rose left her parents' home to move into the new Cheltenham flat Fred then lived in. Shortly thereafter, Fred collected Charmaine and Anna Marie from social services. Bill Letts made one final effort to prevent his daughter from seeing Fred, and Rose was examined by a police surgeon in February 1970 who confirmed she was pregnant. In response, Rose was again placed into care, but was discharged on March 6th on the understanding she would terminate her pregnancy and return to her family. Instead, Rose opted to live with Fred, resulting in her father forbidding his daughter from ever again setting foot in his household. Mm. Three months later, Rose and Fred relocated to the ground floor flat of a two-story house in Midland Road. On October 17, 1970, Rose gave birth to their first child, a daughter they named Heather Ann. It's weird. There's a Char and a Heather. Mm-hmm. Basic bitches. <laughs> uh, okay. Basic about the name Charmaine. There isn't. I know. That's why when like I like I didn't pick this one because of that name. I picked this one, and then as I was reading it, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. weird, Charmaine. <laughs> Not that that's your name, Char. No. No, it's just a really pretty name. What a pretty, pretty, I don't know pretty how name. People come up with it. Should ask uh, Marina. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, there is speculation that Heather may have been fathered by Rose's own father. Right. So, it could be Fred's, could be Rose's father. Who knows? Two months later, Fred was imprisoned for the theft of car parts. He remained imprisoned until June of 1971. As he served this six-and-a-half-month sentence, Rose, having just turned 17, looked after the three girls, with Charmaine and Anna Marie being told to refer to Rose as their mother. According to Anna Marie, she and Charmaine were frequently subjected to criticism, beatings, and other forms of punishment throughout the time they lived under Rose's care at Midland Road. Although Anna Marie was generally submissive and prone to display emotion in response to the physical and mental hardships she and her sister endured, Charmaine repeatedly infuriated Rose by her stoic refusal to either cry or display any sign of grief or servitude no matter how severely she was physically abused. Despite the... What? You good? Yeah, I'm good. I was just going to say, fuck yeah, kid. Don't take no shit. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Despite... But? but, (laughs) Did you say but? But. But. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, a little bit of a spoiler, but Anna Marie does kind of... Yeah, she gets out of this situation by being the way she was. Yeah. Agreeable, not combative, letting her father rape her. Like... Yeah. Whereas... If any of the kids had that attitude, they typically died. We'll get into it. Despite the years of neglect and abuse, Charmaine's spirit had not been broken. She talked wistfully to Anna Marie of her... To Anna Marie of the belief she held that her mummy will come and save me. 
Anna Marie later recollected her sister repeatedly antagonized Rose by making statements such as, quote, my real mummy wouldn't swear, shouted us, in response to Rose's bad language. A childhood friend of Charmaine's named Tracy Giles, who had lived in the upper flat of 25 Midland Road, would later recollect an incident in which she had entered the West flat unannounced only to see Charmaine naked and standing upon a chair, gagged and with her hands bound behind her back with a belt as Rose stood alongside the child with a large wooden spoon in her hand. According to Tracy, Charmaine had been calm and unconcerned, while Anna Marie had been standing by the door with a blank expression on her face. So obviously something that wasn't out of the norm. Hmm. Hospital records revealed that Charmaine had received treatment for a severe puncture wound to her left ankle in the casualty unit of the Royal Hospital on March 28, 1971. This incident was explained by Rose to have resulted from a household accident. Rose is believed to have killed Charmaine shortly before Fred's prison release date of June 24, 1971. She is known to have taken Charmaine, Anna Marie, and Heather to visit Fred on June 15. It is believed to be on or very shortly after this date that Charmaine was murdered. There was forensic evidence that confirmed Charmaine had died while Fred was still incarcerated. Further testimony from Tracy Giles' mother, Shirley, corroborated the fact that Charmaine had been murdered before Fred had been released on June 24th. In her later testimony at Rose's trial, Shirley stated she and her family had lived in the upper flat of Midland Road in 1971 and that her two daughters had been playmates of Charmaine and Anna Marie. She stated that after her family had vacated the upper flat of Midland Road in April 1971, on one day in June, she had brought Tracy to visit Charmaine only for Tracy to be told by Rose that, quote, she's gone to live with her mother and bloody good riddance. Again, they're British. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. And bloody good riddance. Sorry. So nice, so kind. Bloody hell. Maternal, yeah. Giles was adamant Fred was still in prison on this occasion. As with the Giles family, Rose explained Charmaine's disappearance to others who inquired about her whereabouts by claiming that Rena had called and taken her eldest daughter to live with her in Bristol. She informed staff at Charmaine's primary school that the child had moved with her mother to London. So just like her stories would be a little fucky. When Fred was released from prison on June 24th, he dealt with Anna Marie's concerns for her sister's whereabouts by claiming her mother had collected Charmaine and returned to Scotland. In her autobiography, Out of the Shadows, Anna Marie recollected that when she asked why her mother had collected Charmaine, but not her, Fred callously replied, quote, she wouldn't want you, love. You are the wrong color. <laughs> Whoa. Charmaine, again, was the first child who would have been half Asian. Mm-hmm. Charmaine's body was initially stowed in the coal cellar of Midland Road until Fred was released from prison. He later buried her naked body in the yard close to the back door of the flat and remained adamant he had not dismembered her. 
A subsequent autopsy suggested the body had been severed at the hip. This damage may have been caused by building work Fred conducted at the property in 1976. So it's possible that he didn't chop her up, I guess. It's possible it happened after. Mm -hmm. Several bones, particularly finger, wrist, toe, and ankle bones, were missing from her skeleton. Leading to the speculation, the missing parts had been retained as keepsakes. This proved to be a distinctive discovery in all the autopsies of the victims exhumed in 1994. So again, I don't think that could be a coincidence because they they would keep those like finger and toe bones. They would be missing. Kept them where? We don't know. And uh, just in case the timeline is a little confusing right now, Charmaine was only eight years old when she was murdered. Charmaine's mother, Rena, maintained sporadic contact with both Charmaine and Anna Marie on each occasion she and Fred separated. She is also known to have visited Moorcourt Cottage to inquire as to her children's whereabouts and welfare in the later half of August 1971. Fred's sister-in-law, Christine, later recollected Rena was depressed and extremely anxious about her children's welfare. Being provided with Fred's Midland Road address, Rena sought to confront him, likely to discuss or demand custody of her daughters. This was the final time Rena was seen alive. She is believed to have been murdered by strangulation, possibly in the backseat of Fred's Ford, and likely while intoxicated. When her body was discovered, a short length of metal tubing was found with her remains, leaving an equal possibility she had been restrained and subjected to a sexual assault prior to her murder. Rena's body was extensively dismembered, placed into plastic bags, and buried close to a cluster of trees known as Utree Coppice at Letterbox Field, about one mile from Much Markle. Mm-hmm. On January 29th, 1972, Fred and Rose married. The ceremony took place at Gloucester Register Office, with Fred incorrectly describing himself upon the marriage certificate as a bachelor. No family or friends were invited apart from Fred's brother, once again, John, who acted as best man. Several months later, with Rose pregnant with her second child, the couple moved from Midland Road to an address nearby. 25 Cromwell Street. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Initially, the three-story home was rented from the council. Fred later purchased the property from the council for, I believe, 7,000 mm-hmm. pounds. To facilitate the West's purchasing the property from the council, many of the upper floor rooms were initially converted into bedsits to supplement the household income. To maintain a degree of privacy for his own family, Fred installed a cooker and a wash basin on the first floor landing in order that their lodgers need not enter the ground floor where the West family lived and only he and his family were permitted access to the garden of the property. So he had people renting out rooms up top, really. On June 1st, Rose gave birth to a second daughter. The date of her birth led Fred and Rose to name the child May-June. 
because she was born on June 1st, but yeah. they probably thought that she was going to be born in May. January, March, April, May, June. <laughs> yeah, they were probably going to name her May, and then she was born in June. And man. They were like, well, fuck, her name's we're still stupid. May. We're stupid. We have to name Shouldn't her. Shouldn't have been June, May. I get why they didn't. May, June makes more sense. Anyway. <laughs> uh, shortly after giving birth to May, Rose began to work as a prostitute operating from an upstairs room at their residence and advertising her services in a local contact magazine. Fred encouraged Rose to seek clients in the West Indian community through these advertisements. In addition to her prostitution, Rose engaged in casual sex with both male and female lodgers within their household, and individuals Fred encountered via his work. She also bragged to several people that no man or woman could completely satisfy her. (laughs) When engaging in sexual relations with women, Rose would gradually increase the level of brutality to which she subjected her partner with acts such as partially suffocating her partner or or inserting increasingly large dildos into her partner's body. If the woman resisted or expressed any pain or fear, this would greatly excite Rose, who would typically ask, quote, aren't you woman enough to take it? Freak. Wow. To many of these women, it became apparent Rose and her husband, who regularly participated in threesomes with his wife and her lovers, took a particular pleasure from seeking to take women beyond their sexual limits, typically via sessions involving bondage, as the West's openly admitted to taking a particular pleasure from any form of sex involving a strong measure of dominance, pain, and violence. Sounds exciting. (sighs) Jesus. Just <laughs> mm. imagine what kind of fucking life. Sick, twisted people just being like, yeah, come on in. Let's go up to my red room of pain and then let's and kill they, our like, kids and have more that? kids. In the magazines, they used to have like, um, like codes and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So they, that's how they did it. Well, even now you can go on to whatever Craigslist. Find people that you know they're they want to dominatrix or whatever. You can find people who want to be abused. Like there mm-hmm. are actually women who get paid to insult men. Um, totally. Shame porn. Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I'm 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 there. I'm, I'm for it. As long as I don't gonna take my clothes off, I'm for it. I'll call you a pig all day long if you want to. You pay nasty me. fuck. Yeah. <laughs> disgusting piece of hey, shit you're not good enough <laughs> pay me more <laughs> we're gonna get a whole other audience on this podcast <laughs> hope so <laughs> hit, uh, me up. hit me up i can insult like the best of them <laughs> anyways i just like back in those days like in the 70s how would you i don't know there were codes to codes put in the and newspapers and shit just twisted though yeah it is twisted to cater to these fetishes, they amassed a large collection of bondage and restraining devices, magazines, and photographs, later expanding this collection to include videos depicting bestiality and graphic child sexual abuse. Terrible. Which, off topic, but we're coming to the end of part one here, 
Did you see the case? I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's Australia or what. The guy who just got like convicted or is going through trial of raping multiple animals and killing them. No. We'll have to do that one because it is fucked. I just don't understand why we would have to do that one. Because he is a serial rapist. Of animals? And killer. Yeah, animals are just as important. I mean, more so because they, I mean, I don't. They're so, like, I don't think that I can desensitize myself to that to cover that story. I'll listen to you, but I I mean. Damn right. So I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to talk about how disgusting he is. I can't. I can barely get through parents killing their kids anymore. I can, I I wouldn't be able to. I, mean, I don't. Have we here, done like, one of those? And stuff. What? Have we even done one of those what? for the podcast? Parents killing their kids. Don't even get me started. Okay. We haven't though. I've done Bella Fontanelle. I have done Megan Boswell. I have done Chad Dorman. Okay, some of those don't have convictions. Not yet. Not yet. None of them do yet. Stop eating the muffin while we're recording. Well, I didn't think you were going to put this part Pretty sure. This is a good talk. That just shows that you haven't listened to your own podcast. I don't like to, and I won't. I love listening to our podcast, but I won't listen to the ones I do by myself. But yes, I was doing, that's all I was doing for a while. It was terrible. I think we can get through a little bit more before this part is done and we have to move over to part two. Rose controlled the West family finances and Fred would give her his money whenever he was paid. The room Rose used for prostitution was known throughout the West household as Rose's room (laughs) and had several hidden peepholes allowing Fred, a longtime voyeur, to watch her entertain her clients. He also installed a baby monitor in the room allowing him to listen from elsewhere in the house. The room included a private bar and a red light outside the door to warn when Rose was not to be disturbed. So they would take the money that, you know, she would make doing all this nasty stuff and they would just upgrade her little lair, lair, red room of pain. Rose carried the sole key to this room around her neck. And Fred installed a separate doorbell to the household, which Rose's clients were instructed to ring whenever they visited the household. By 1977, Rose's father had come to tolerate his daughter's marriage and to develop a grudging respect for Fred. Together, he and Fred opened a cafe named The Green Lantern, which was soon insolvent. When Bill Letts discovered Rose's prostitution, he would also visit to have sex with his daughter. By 1983, she had given birth to eight children, at least three of whom were conceived by clients. Lord. Fred willingly accepted these children as his own and falsely informed them the reason their skin was darker than that of their siblings was because his great-grandmother was a black woman. Wow. <sighs> wow. Stupid, stupid, stupid. So, honestly, I do think that that is a pretty good place to leave off this first part. And we will pick up in part two. It gets crazier. It's honestly, like, this is worth listening to. Because this story is just so crazy. 
And remember, part two will be released on Patreon right away. So, yeah. Yeah. Go to Patreon. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. If you don't mind leaving us a five-star rating, it'll help our show grow. Um, check us out on TikTok and Twitter at True Crime Story Pod. And if you need to email us or if you have case suggestions or stories you want to share, you can email us at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com or on Facebook Messenger. Don't forget to join Patreon. The link is in the show notes. And if you want to buy us a coffee, the link will also be in the show notes. Thank you in advance so much for supporting the show, and thank you for listening. I'm Brie. And I'm Charlotte. And we'll see you in the next chapter. Bye! Bye.